Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor at the Summit of EU Leaders in Prague. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, those eagerly awaited talks on the Northern Ireland Protocol resume amid blossoming optimism in various quarters that a deal can be done. We'll take a sober look at whether this optimism is misplaced or whether this time it is really different. We'll take you through the structure and timetable and we'll look at what's different compared to the talks which ran into the sand last February. And we'll assess the new mood of contrition and candour with the likes of Brexit hardman Steve Baker apologising to Ireland no less, yes apologising for his past behaviour and Leo Varadkar saying that the protocol was being applied a little too strictly. And friend or foe, we'll assess the sudden romance between Liz Truss and Emmanuel Macron who met in the splendour of Prague Castle and started a new Entente Cordiale over migration and nuclear energy. Will it extend to the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, we'll get to that in due course, Tony, but let's take it back to the apology, which I think it would be fair whether people read much into the substance of it or not. The apology by Steve Baker for his role and that of the ERG, who we take it to mean his colleagues, in poisoning the well somewhat in Anglo-Irish and UK EU relations. Let's hear what he had to say on that. But the thing I want to add, as one of the people who uh, perhaps uh, acted with the most ferocious determination to get the UK out of the EU, I, I think we have to bring some humility to this situation. And it's with humility that I want to accept and acknowledge that I and others did not always behave in a way which encouraged Ireland and the European Union to, to trust us to accept that they have legitimate interests, legitimate interests that we're willing to respect, because they do and we are willing to respect them. And I'm sorry about that, because relations with Ireland are not where they should be, and we all need to work extremely hard to improve them, and I, I know that we are doing so. Tony, that, those remarks must have been greeted with surprise and maybe a degree of scepticism. Yeah, I mean, there, there were certainly eyebrows raised in Brussels and in Dublin, although at one level people were certainly uh, pleased that that acknowledgement had been made and given the broader context of the reset and the optimism, this was also seen as perhaps a bit of a strategic milestone uh, on the road to, to a reset, uh, especially coming from someone like Steve Baker, who, who really has been very bullish in the past on the protocol and on the European Union, which he once said should be dismantled. Uh, so this obviously was quite an eye-catching uh, intervention and provoked a little bit of chagrin from uh, the unionists in Northern Ireland and indeed Kate Hoey, uh, the uh, Labour peer who uh, uh, is a very strong Brexiteer and uh, deeply opposed to the Northern Ireland Protocol. She was kind of wondering why on earth people like Steve Baker should be apologising to Ireland. Uh, but nonetheless, the apology came and it was uh, welcomed by people in Dublin and in Brussels. On the apology itself, I mean, people did point to the heavy caveat that he still wants the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill to be passed and he still believes that's what's contained in it is the solution to the quote-unquote Northern Ireland Protocol problem. Yeah, that's true. And, and of course we should always qualify the optimism by saying that that is still the British government's view and Liz Truss made that clear in her first intervention as Prime Minister in the House of Commons that 
the negotiations were all well and good, but any outcome of the negotiations had to contain what's in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And of course, that bill is still uh, making its way through uh, Parliament. Uh, it, it's, it's due to be uh, looked at by the House of Lords uh, very soon. Um, so so I, I think this is a reflection of the fact that while there is all this optimism and while the talks now, the technical talks, have got underway, um, the, the protocol bill itself is still going to be a major bone of contention between both sides. Um, I believe the UK has told the European Commission that Liz Truss will not uh, speed up the bill's passage through the Lords, nor will she slow it down, uh, but but the bill is still there. Um, so I think that's something we'll, we'll come back to. Right. I mean, it, some of the things that seem to have led up to the apology, or at least provided the context for it, are the simple fact that people are not locked down as in the pandemic era people can meet. And around the fringes of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, Micheál Martin, uh, Michael D. Higgins, Simon Coveney were over in the UK and Micheál Martin and Simon Coveney met their counterparts there and indeed the ministers in the Northern Ireland office who would include Chris Heaton-Harris, obviously the Northern Secretary, and Steve Baker himself. And they seemed to take the Irish government's expressions of condolences and sympathy, expressing that empathy at face value, that actually these weren't bad people after all. And that did seem to provide at least some of the thaw in in all of these interpersonal relations, which at the end of the day are important to establish trust. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it was a very important period that, I mean, if, if we think of all the momentous things that happened in early September with the election of Liz Trust, and then within a couple of days, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And of course, the the, the overall context here is is the UK's completely tattered relationship with the European Union going back since Brexit happened, um, largely because of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, but also the, the really frayed relations between the UK and Ireland. I mean, Micheál Martin, you'll recall, talking about the phone call he had back in uh, June with Boris Johnson saying it was the worst phone call he'd ever had uh, with, with another leader. Um, you know, it, it's important not to forget that relationship as well. And Queen Elizabeth's death, and all of the recollection of her time in Ireland, her visit in 2011, and the subsequent follow-up visit by Michael D. Higgins uh, to the UK in 2014, shone quite a, an important light on the role she played and on the need for reconciliation, th this idea that it is an ongoing process, it's not simply something that's done and dusted with a, a state visit or two. And I think that all fed into this sense of a reset, uh, the sense of reconciliation and introspection uh, this month, well, in September. And that has helped the whole idea of a reset. Um, and I think that we, we can see Steve Baker's intervention in that light as well. Right, I suppose it also has to be said that Emmanuel Macron also did uh, the sympathy thing fairly articulately around the time of the Queen's death uh, as well, saying that she was just the Queen and that, you know, the, the, the French people had had uh, fairly warm feelings towards her as well. But, I mean, to fast forward to today and the manifestation, at least on the Anglo-Irish front, of those warm relations, 
Simon Coveney was meeting James Cleverly last night. Um, Miss Simon Coveney saying that political leadership is about making things happen um, and focusing on timelines and steps forward. And then we had uh, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference today, which is co-chaired by the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, and Simon Coveney, the Irish Foreign Minister. And they had a press conference afterwards uh, and had some pretty positive words to say. Simon Coveney saying, look, if this zero-sum game aspect of it falls off the table and we just have a nil-all draw and both sides can come away claiming victory, then that's not a bad outcome. But here's some of the positivity they were expressing at that. You know, I want to be very positive about the chances of getting a negotiated so- solution. I believe we're all working uh, in good spirit um, and with good cooperation to deliver f- uh, on the changes that are required for the protocol um, to be uh, fixed, or the issues within the protocol to be fixed. Um, and we need, to, we need to show some progress on that. And I think, again, we are probably in broad agreement that, um, that the reason that uh, we need uh, something pretty quickly is because we want to get the executive back. And you know, the unionist community is, fe- is feeling as though it, it, it is under some great pressure because of elements of the protocol, goods and services not being available uh, in Northern Ireland that are available in the rest of Great Britain. I think the European Commission has shown a willingness to compromise, uh, uh, to, uh, to seek ways of showing real pragmatic flexibility in terms of how the protocol is implemented, responding to people's concerns. Uh, and I think the conversations we're having now uh, with the British government uh, certainly suggest to me uh, that we are in a different space now, one we haven't been in for quite some time, where there is a, a genuine effort, which we certainly haven't seen since, well, certainly last February was the last time there was any serious discussion uh, on actually how we can solve these problems together. Uh, we're certainly in that space now. These issues need to be resolved between <coughs> London and Brussels, not London and Dublin. Well, that was Simon Coveney finishing that joint clip with himself and, and Chris Heaton-Harris. Of course, uh, Tony, this, this isn't really where the business is going to be done Although I suppose Ireland's feelings on solutions are, are, may act as a weather vane uh, in Europe, as in if, if solutions fly with Ireland, they may gather more credence in Europe or they may get more support in Europe. Or, or, or is that the wrong way of looking at it? No, I, I think it's a very important point, Colm. I mean, Ireland is, is going to be really crucial in, in the coming months uh, as far as these negotiations are concerned. In, uh, on the one hand, the government is a little bit wary of any attempt to bilateralise the problem, uh, this idea of a fix between London and Dublin. Um, and in some ways, the, the cynics would have perhaps seen Steve Baker's apology in that light. Um, but at the same time, and people in Brussels and European capitals know this, Ireland is there as the kind of Brit whisperer, uh, if you like. We understand the British political system perhaps better than any other European country. We, I mean, the Irish government understands the nuances and complexity of the protocol and the sensitivity around unionism and the protocol. So Ireland will be essentially a... A, a, almost a spiritual hand in the negotiations uh, at, at key points. 
Um, but this will be a negotiation between uh, the European Commission and the British government, and there will have to be times where EU member states, national capitals, diplomats in Brussels kept abreast of what's happening, and they will have to be on board with, with everything that goes on in these negotiations. Right. Ireland, to paraphrase the former US Middle East negotiator, Aaron David Miller, is not going to become Britain's lawyer in this process, something that some European uh, countries were nervous about back when Brexit first broke and Enda Kenny uh, was the Taoiseach here. There were some European concerns over how Ireland might act and whether they might be overly favourable to the UK's interests due to fears of how it would affect Ireland. Ireland has been keen to avoid the appearance of going out to bat overly strongly for the UK. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was even uh, a, a phrase coined, the, the Trojanisation of, of the Brexit negotiations, that Ireland would be somehow a Trojan horse for the UK, ostensibly seeking ways of mitigating the impact of Brexit uh, on the island of Ireland and the border, but also in ways that might benefit the British government in getting some kind of sweetheart trade deal uh, with favourable access to the single market without following any of its uh, laws and strictures. So th- so that's something that the, that the Irish government, I think, has lived with throughout the, the past six, five or six years of the Brexit negotiations. Um, uh, and they are fairly wise to, to the dangers there. Um, and I think the UK government would also be sensitive to that as well. Um, but here we are, the, the the talks are getting underway and the, the 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 action is now happening and we have a timetable and a schedule as to how that's all going to unfold. I mean, I suppose a good sign in a way was you, you, you're in Prague at the moment. When you met the Taoiseach there, he, he, he was preferring to stay a lot more tight-lipped maybe than, uh, than, than people have in the past. He, he was keen... I suppose, not to throw any petrol on on the Brexit bonfire. Yeah, so he arrived in Prague yesterday, Thursday, uh, along with 42 other continental European leaders for this one-day inaugural summit of the European political community, the the brainchild of Emmanuel Macron. And we asked him, did he think that at a minimum the UK should pause the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill as a good gesture, good good faith gesture, um, to, to allow these talks to, to get underway without, without the loaded gun on the table. Um, this is what he had to say. At today's meeting, the, the protocol will not arise. Tomorrow we do have the informal EU Council. But fundamentally, I met with uh, Prime Minister Truss close to three weeks ago. We had a substantive meeting then. Um, so and subsequently the, the Prime Minister met with the President of the Commission. Um, and um, so my understanding is some technical interactions are happening now uh, at that level. And um, as I've said before, I think uh, it's, it's my view that there's a genuine wish uh, on all fronts to have or to prefer and negotiate a resolution of all of these issues. But I do believe we need to create space for that to happen as well. And so I don't intend to comment any further on serious. As I said, I think there's a genuine uh, desire on all sides, including the UK government, that there would be a negotiated resolution of this. That doesn't in any way understate the difficulties involved in get, uh, arriving at a resolution, but I do think there's good faith on all sides. Do you think at a minimum the UK, as an act of good faith, should 
somehow pause the progress of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill through Parliament? Well, I, again, we're all very conscious that one of the challenges in situations like this is that to have daily commentary um, around any process can be problematic, to say the least. And it's uh, our, our view, certainly my view, that uh, at this stage that to, to engage in that sort of approach would be unhelpful. Um, so a window of opportunity is there. Um, there are many different confidence measures that can be decided upon by the various parties to these talks uh, at any given stage. But I think fundamentally, if the will is there, I've always said this, if the will is there, um, issues can be resolved. So I don't really want to comment any further other than to say that um, you know, there's a process in place. I think we should create space to allow people to work out uh, a resolution of this. So it's fair to say, Tony, he wasn't going to be drawn on that. Does that indicate that there is a process there to be protected that he doesn't want to endanger by commenting? And if so, what is that process? What stage is it at and what's it trying to achieve? Yeah, no, I think clearly he, he doesn't want to draw any heat uh, onto the process and we could be getting into a semi-formal tunnel uh, of which we have spoken many times before. Um, so I suppose the first question is what's different between this set of negotiations and what was going on up until February the 11th this year and, and obviously last year we, we had the talks between David Frost and Maros Shevcevic between September and Christmas. Then he resigned he was then replaced by Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. Those talks ran until early February and didn't really get anywhere. Now, those talks were obviously about the proposals that the European Commission had brought forward in October last year, the four so-called non-papers. They weren't take-it-or-leave-it ideas. These were areas that could be built on by both sides. The Commission complained that the UK didn't really engage. The UK complained that the papers just didn't go far enough. They wanted something a lot more radical on the protocol, something more like the command paper that they uh, brought out in July of last year. Um, obviously, in the meantime, we've had the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill in June. Uh, the, the talks went into abeyance, and now they're back. Now, what, what is different is that they're going to be getting into much more in-depth explorations of the issues, uh, customs, agri-food, SPS, competition law, VAT, governance, um, and the, these deep dives are going to be going on in parallel week on week, uh, and you're going to have much more regular political intervention by James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary, and Maros Shevchevich to, to inject some momentum if things are getting a bit stuck. Um, so, so that looks like a much more dynamic uh, process than what we had last year, because last year it was simply... Frost and Shevchevich meeting every two weeks and nothing much happening in between. Um, partly because, according to the Commission, the, the, the UK simply weren't uh, engaging on the October proposals. Um, now, what, what I think is noteworthy this time around is, is they want to start with issues that could be solved fairly quickly. We've had a problem of 25% tariffs on steel products entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Um, that's an issue the Commission say they can fix. Um, there, there, there's going to be issues around energy cooperation, whether or not the UK, if the UK wants to spend money to protect businesses and consumers in Northern Ireland, is that going to be inhibited by the protocol? They can probably find a fix on that. Um, uh, and, and then 
they are very close now on this whole data access system, the system by which EU officials in Northern Ireland or in, in European capitals can look almost in real time uh, in great detail at what is coming in to Northern Ireland from Great Britain uh, thanks to a bespoke data access system that the UK has built, uh, which basically combines a lot of the HMRC customs databases that are that are operational normally for the UK. That's been a bit of a bone of contention for the past couple of years, but it's now ready. It, it's almost ready to be signed off by both sides. So again, once that's ready, the U EU can say, well, look, now that we can see precisely what's coming in through this data system, we can then afford to be a lot more flexible and decide, well, we don't need checks except if there's a, a strange spike in the system here or there or something looks suspicious according to the data. So I think that's going to be a key area where achie an achievement could be reached in fairly short order. In the UK at the moment, the government is discussing a sort of a, a bonfire of European red tape and introducing red, white and blue tape of their own. Is that viewed with any apprehension or as a complicating factor potentially in, in reaching agreement that the more there is divergence and complexity on either side, that the more difficult it would be to nail down the specifics of an agreement? Or is this something that is primarily worrying British business people looking at the dual systems they'll have to contend with if they're running an export business? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bonfire of regulations is a concern for business in the UK and a lot of business organisations have complained about it. Um, I mean, how you can purge the British legal canon of thousands of small and, and sometimes not very consequential bits of legislation that just help to keep uh, various bits of life and regulation taking over in the UK, how you can just purge that in one fell swoop with a hard deadline and, and not have it replaced by British law it seems to be a bit of a tall order. Uh, but it does speak to the wider issue of divergence and that, that is going to be a problem. And they will, I think, have to come up with some kind of holistic solution as to how the divergence agenda is managed over time. Because every time the UK pulls away from the EU's regulatory orbit, then that essentially would, on, on paper at least, thicken the, the sea border uh, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I just want to ask you, Tony, about comments by the Tánaiste Leo Varadkar, and maybe uh, too much has been made of them on one level in which he said the protocol uh, was too strict. Let's hear what he had to say. Perhaps the protocol, as it was originally designed, um, was a little too strict. Uh, the protocol has not been fully implemented, and yet it is still working. And I think that uh, you know, demonstrates that there is some room um, for further flexibility for some changes that hopefully would make it acceptable to all sides. I mean, Tony, you can either take that to mean that this is entirely in alignment with what the Commission is saying, or it could be part of the Thornish's previous history of going a little off-piste to try and push the action forward. What's the assessment on the Brussels end of things, if any, as to which category that fits into? Well, I suppose you could say that, um, you know, the, the fact that the EU did bring forward proposals last year that would make the protocol a lot more flexible and less onerous. That that in itself was an acknowledgement that uh, it, it in, in its existing form was being applied too strictly or that 
it, it you needed a bit more of a common sense approach to it. Now, I've, I've spoken to diplomats in Brussels who've said, look, we now have the lived experience of the protocol after whatever, six months or a year. And it's clear that given the nature of the, the goods traffic entering Northern Ireland and the, na and, and the percentage size of that goods traffic relative to the entire European Union single market economy, that it's probably not appropriate to, to bring the full weight of the European Union's customs code to bear um, on the sea border. Um, so I, I think there has been an acknowledgement that lived experience has shown that uh, flexibility is necessary and this is just something that uh, Leo Varadkar is acknowledging. Um, but I'm sure as well it is part of the zeitgeist of contrition and reaching out and trying to again foster this mood of optimism uh, and, and a new context in which these negotiations can take place. I mean, we, we we began on the issue to a certain degree, Tony, of personalities. So what's what's different? What has happened in the last while to bring about the warmth and the humour? We've talked about the Queen's funeral and everything else. Is Are things as simple as the departure of David Frost and the incoming government being determined to have a reset for economic reasons in any way part of this? I mean, how much of it is personality and how much of it is economic necessity? Well, the, the personalities are, are fascinating because there, there was quite a bit of dismay in some quarters that Liz Truss had appointed hard men like Steve Baker and Chris Heaton-Harris to those very influential positions in the Northern Ireland office. And, of course, that Liz Truss owed her position as Prime Minister to the ERG. Um, at, at the same time, she is facing a horrendous baptism of fire in her early weeks as Prime Minister. We had the market meltdown last week following the budget. She's facing problems on many, many fronts, and it's a clear mathematical equation that she does not want to have a trade war with the EU on top of that. Um, and I think there is a sense that you pick up here in Prague when she, when she was here yesterday that she shares this idea that look th there are graver problems in the world at the moment with Russia's invasion and the energy crisis. Why are we all wasting time and energy and political capital on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Um, now, having said that, both sides are still quite far apart on, on the big issues. Um, as I said, the UK has said that they're not going to pause the Northern Ireland Protocol bill. The UK also wants the European Court of Justice to be um, essentially removed in some way from its place in the Northern Ireland Protocol. The EU has told British officials that that's, that that's not negotiable. The, the European Court of Justice has to be there. Uh, and also that if the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill becomes law and is enacted during the negotiations, then that's a total game changer. That will change everything. Um, so we can assume that those big, difficult issues will be parked and then if you do get momentum with various chapters of the talks getting closed off successfully, then when it comes to it, you could get either a fudge on the ECJ or some kind of language that can allow everybody to go home happy and something similar with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that it's it's not ever going to be needed because we now have a, a fix on customs and agri-food 
that has made this sea border almost invisible. That's certainly what, what the aspiration would be. And even Chris Heaton-Harris has said that it would become a redundant piece of legislation if a deal was reached. But I suppose, Tony, we finish up uh, every week normally with a kind of a, a look ahead. The biggest date on the look ahead calendar is the 28th of October, in which case, uh, by which time uh, the executive in Northern Ireland would have to be formed or it's back to an election in Northern Ireland with all of the rancour and instability that, that that implies. And at the same time, the politicians involved in trying to put a protocol deal together are managing expectations, Simon Coveney at least, dismissing the notion that a deal could be achieved by that deadline. So what could be achieved by that deadline that might give the political cover to the DUP to get back into the executive? Or is that just too much of a stretch to get you to speculate on not not a problem um i mean the certainly the timetable that we're looking at if we're going to get all these parallel deep dive explorations of the issues then it's going to take more than weeks to to get that far i suppose at a stretch there is the possibility that if they do make significant progress on customs and the, the, the whole nature of the data access system if they can show well look this if we get if we can crack this in the first couple of weeks then that really does take the physical nature of the protocol um you know off the agenda that it's going to be a much less physical presence much fewer checks a much more discreet uh, operation of the protocol then you could perhaps see that that might prompt a staged return to Stormont by the DUP and we might find some some way of avoiding elections but I th- I think that would be quite an achievement and it's probably unlikely at this at this um, from this vantage point so the elections will probably go ahead um, and then it'll be a case of what you know eventually what will the DUP's view be of whatever deal is done uh, the protocol is not going to be ditched completely it's it's obviously going to be changed in some shape or form so that both sides can can claim that their objectives have been met but whether the DUP's objectives have been met given that they've marched themselves up to the top of that hill that's another question that's it for this week from me Colm O'Mungoyne RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin and from me Tony Connolly RT's Europe Editor in Prague Thanks for listening.